that statement says something, as we'll get into in, in this discussion, Lord willing, that statement says something about the type of repentance that we're talking about. And so the confessors are, are talking about a particular type of repentance. I guess the, the, the implication is that there is a repentance that is not unto life. We are speaking of repentance unto life. And I'm just going to get into it. Um, we're in chapter 15, if you want to follow along in your confession or in the handout. Let me, let me ask God's blessing, if I can, one more time. Our Father, uh, we pray for your help now. I ask for strength. Lord, please sustain my voice. And uh, would you just please be with us, Lord? Uh, we want to understand these things. We want to grow as we prayed earlier. Um, we want to more faithfully walk with our God. Uh, we want to read our Bibles and understand our Bibles, Lord, to a, greater, uh, to a greater level. But we also want to be able to communicate the things of the Lord as we speak to our families, our loved ones, a stranger on the street, our fellow church members. When folks ask us questions, Lord, we pray that these studies would be a help for us to articulate the doctrines that are found in the Bible. And so would you give us grace this hour, Lord, that our hearts and minds might be attentive to focus on these things, still our wandering thoughts and all that, that might come against the listening of your word, we ask now in Jesus' name, amen. And so we see, firstly, the varied experiences of repentance. As we've said all along, this, um, this confession is a, an edited version of the Westminster Confession. After that came the Savoy Declaration and then the London Baptist. And the Congregationalists that wrote the Savoy modified this chapter greatly. And the Baptists adopted almost wholesale their edit. So if you were to go look at the Westminster Confession, this chapter is almost completely different. Some of the content is there, but the structure, the layout, um, they've, they've changed it quite a bit. And we'll talk maybe just briefly about likely the reason for that, why they began it like they did. But we see firstly what I've called the varied experiences of repentance. Chapter 15 and paragraph 1, such of the elect that are converted at riper years, having sometime lived in the state of nature, and therein served diverse pleasures, God in their effectual calling gives them repentance to life. So the confession begins sort of strangely. Usually, we'll see uh, an introduction type of paragraph, uh, a summary of the entire chapter, but they don't do that here. They sort of get off the plan here. Actually, if you read Westminster, it's more in line with that, with that layout. Um, but they're, they're thinking about people and their experience of repentance at different ages or at different times in life. So some people are converted at a, a younger age. Right? Children uh, can come to saving faith in Christ. And for those converted at a younger age, they may never experience the things that we just read about there. Uh, they may never live their life in rampant sin and transgression. Right? Uh, their lives may never be plagued by the various evils. Now, we're not saying that a, 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 a child that is converted and lives their life as a Christian does not sin. But they may not, they may not experience the, the, the full indulgence of the lust of their flesh, right? 
They may not deal with the, the many hardships that come from living a life sold out for this world, right? And all of the sorrows that come along with that, the baggage that comes into our lives and into our souls uh, from a life of, of living in the world. On the contrary, their lives, those that are converted when they are young, their lives may have been always marked by a sort of outward morality, right? They, they may have always, from birth, praise be to God, sat under the ordinary means of grace in a faithful gospel church. They may have grown up always praising the living God with his people on the Lord's Day. They may have always just have said, Jesus is Lord. It's funny, every time I tell my son that he needs to believe upon Christ to be saved, he says, I am, Dad, I did. <laughs> and I pray that just always is, right? That he doesn't need to have a catastrophic experience of, you know, shocking sin and, and, and uh, repentance, but that he always trusts the Lord. Certainly he must be converted. That has to happen. Um, but those raised in the covenant community, if we can use that language, may experience the grace of, of the Lord in such a way that they're kept from the many miseries of this world that are related to us indulging ourselves in our sin. But the confession here wanted to address those that are converted at riper years. <laughs> Some of us here are riper than others. <laughs> Some are converted later in life, right? And those may have followed, we read Ephesians 2, the course of this world. They, they, they were led by the prince of the power of the air. They lived their lives, sometimes for many years, according to the passions of their flesh, carrying out the desires of the body. They may have been heavily captured, enslaved by various sins, and suffered much corruption of the mind and the soul and the body as they lived a life of abject depravity. So we see this contrast of two types of people and then a wide swath of those in between. The the point that we're trying to make here is that all, as they are saved, all are granted repentance. It may look very different for the young person or even the infant that dies in infancy, but repentance is a work that is included in effectual calling. James Renahan says it like this, He, God, gives repentance and the elect exercise it when it is given. Repentance, now this is a distinction that we might have as Reformed folk, uh, opposed, as opposed to uh, you know, an evangelical Arminian. Um, repentance does not initiate the saving call of God on our life. It's not that we say, okay, I've, I've, I'm there, I'm going to do it, I'm going to repent and I'm going to believe, and then God says, yes, now you're mine. No, it is the saving call of God that initiates the repentance of the sinner. That is the effectual call working in the spirit, by the Spirit as, as He grants repentance, and we come then turning to Him in faith. Uh, we see something to this effect in 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 24. Paul writes... As we heard this, this past Lord's Day, this final letter that we have of, of, the, uh, of the Pauline epistles, 
Verse 24, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. So even though repentance is something that we do, God has to grant that repentance to men. And they may, as he grants them repentance, which leads to the knowledge of the truth, they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. That's a wonderful way to speak of salvation, is it not? That we were captured by the enemy to do his will, snared ensnared by all of his devices, and yet we have, by the grace of God, come to our senses, seen his goodness, and fled from the enemy. Um, really, the point of why this, this, this modification is done here is because we've entered into a debate that was taking place in the 17th century, and that debate centered around infant salvation. You may remember, let me just read it to you, chapter 10 and paragraph 3. Elect infants dying in infancy are regenerated and saved by Christ through the Spirit. So what happens when a baby is stillborn? A baby dies in the womb. A baby is, is aborted by its mother. A baby dies when they're six months old, right? The, the answer in the confession is that those elect infants, now some would say that all infants that die in infancy are elect um, that may be the case. I don't know that the Bible says that clearly. Nonetheless, we certainly have a category for infants being regenerated, granted the new birth, and brought into the kingdom of God. Right? Um, and it says there that they are regenerated. And the, the debate of the day was repentance is not necessary, regeneration is not necessary for infants that die in infancy because they've never sinned. Right? They've never done anything wrong. And the Puritans and the Reformed oppose this strongly because of Adam's guilt and transgression that's been imputed to us, right? We don't confess that babies are born innocent. They're sort of neutral, and then they, they have to be taught or, you know, sin is sort of imposed on them, and then they actually sin. No, there is a point where they commit actual transgressions, if you've raised them, you know it doesn't take that long. <laughs> Nonetheless, they have the guilt and stain of Adamson from birth. We're all part of Adam's fallen race. Um, maybe one quote will, will suffice from uh, Benjamin Keach. He says that we desire it may be considered and carefully heeded, lest we are still abused as Mr. Collins has been. That is, someone wrote some lies about Hercules Collins and... Keach wants to respond, that we steadfastly believe and readily grant it as an article of our faith that all infants are under the guilt and stain of original sin as they come into the world, and that no infant can be saved but through the blood and imputation of Christ's righteousness. And also we do believe that all those dying infants who are saved, God does, in some way or another, which is not known to us, sanctify them. He sets them apart. He grants them the new birth, for no unclean thing can enter in to the heavenly Jerusalem. And then he says simply, see our confession of faith. <laughs> we've, we've confessed these things. We've published our beliefs for you to see very clearly what we believe. And so 
the point here is that some do not experience a radical um, repentance. Some experience a very radical darkness to light. All need the new birth. All are granted repentance by the Lord if they will be saved. Paragraph 2, then, whereas there is none that does good and does not sin, and the best of men may, through the power and deceitfulness of their corruption dwelling in them, with the prevalency of temptation, fall into great sins and provocations, God has, in the covenant of grace, mercifully provided that believers so sinning and falling be renewed through repentance unto salvation. And so we have here now, before we were speaking of the unbeliever repenting, the person that is being converted, now we have the Christian repenting. Is repentance something that Christians are supposed to do? Yes. Do we believe that? Okay. (laughs) Yes. Yes. I know you believe. So repentance, like faith, is a gracious gift of the triune God. The sinner is so moved upon by the efficacious power, the effectual power of the Holy Spirit, that he then responds in true faith and humble repentance. And just like faith, That repentance must be exercised daily. Do we exercise faith daily, every day? Right. Our hope is not in a decision that we made years ago, but our hope is in the fact that we are clung to Christ this day, believing upon Jesus this day. We do not confess what has been called eternal security, or the more popular term, once saved, always saved. Now, We believe that Christians are eternally secure, but that's not how we commonly phrase that. We believe in the perseverance of the saints. Um, Because eternal security often is tied to the doctrine that you can have a, a conversion experience, make a decision for Christ, what have you, and then live your life however you live your life. And you're a Christian because once you've been saved, that event happened and no one can now tell you that you're not a Christian. This is why we've, this is where the carnal Christian doctrine comes from and all of these other things. No, but we believe that those that are truly in Christ will persevere in the faith because the Lord Jesus will preserve them in the faith. And so just as faith is a continual act every day that is exercised, repentance It's not a one-time thing that we do to be converted and then we just sort of let go and let God. But it is a continual, perpetual duty for the Christian, as John the Baptist says, to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And so we see here in the confession a few things. Firstly, the real struggle of sin for believers. Do Christians really struggle with sin? These are easy questions tonight. But, you know, people say some wild things out there on the internet and in churches. Real Christians struggle with real sins, right? And we need to be careful. The Puritans, as they were, you know, doctors of the soul, I think in our day we might be quick to say, you do that sin? Oh, you're not a Christian. 
But you're not part of the kingdom. You haven't been converted. If we see a man struggling with assurance or struggling with sin, our first response is he's probably not a believer. Now, that's part of the question, right? That's, that's part of our discernment to help someone discern, are they truly in the faith? Um, but the Puritans understood that Christians struggle and sometimes succumb greatly to grievous sins in their lives. We read there, whereas there is none that does good and does not sin, and the best of men may, through the power and deceitfulness of their corruption, dwelling in them, with the prevalency of temptation, fall into great sins and provocations. Now, why is this? Why is this? Why are we apt to succumb to sin in this way? Why do we fall back into the same old stuff? Does anybody struggle with that at all, that you've, you've seen yourself back in the same place and you say, man, I thought I got over this. I thought I got over this years ago, but here I am, this, this, this character flaw, this foolish pet sin of mine, this place that I go when, I, uh, when I'm struggling with something. Um, there's a few thoughts here that, that we pull out of here. The first is by underestimating the power of remaining corruption within us. By underestimating the power of remaining corruption within us. I tell this story often, so forgive me if you've heard it three or four times. But I remember when I was at U-Turn for Christ, a man came through and he was sharing his testimony. And he was uh, uh, an ex-gangbanger in Los Angeles. And he was what they call a tecato. Does anybody know what that means? <laughs> a heroin addict. Um, and he, he, he got delivered by the Lord, and he was sober, and he was Superman, and he went back to the neighborhood because he was going to rescue all of his homeboys and pull them out of the slum, right? And he had, he had a wonderful motive, he had a wonderful heart, but the temptation, he didn't realize the remaining corruption within him, and he succumbed to the temptation of being around his friends, and he was drugged back into the mud. But by the grace of God, because he had truly been converted, the Lord renewed his repentance and he was delivered out there, out from that again. And he was a bit more discerning in the future of how he would, you know, preach the gospel. Um, but we underestimate that there is still the flesh within us. And sometimes we can naively think, I, I can do this. I got this. I'm okay. Another, another thing that happens there we read is that we be, can be deceived by that remaining corruption. Again, sometimes we even lie to ourselves. We think we're stronger than we really are, or we think that, that this struggle here or this weakness here is in the past, and now I can, I can partake of this or whatever the thing is. Um, but our flesh at times can deceive us, right, to, to make us think that we are stronger than we are or to lead us down a path, whether it's the enemy, the world, the flesh. And at times we are simply overtaken by great temptations. Maybe we're at a place where we're weak, where we're beat down, we're feeble, we're struggling. And, and the, 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 the thing that tempts us that usually is not that appealing, but in those weak moments when you're despairing or when you're angry or when you're in a fight with your spouse or your friend or what have you, we can be overtaken by great temptations And so the, the confession clearly says that true Christians can and have sinned in grievous ways through ne the neglect of the means of their 
preservation and the, the neglect of the watchfulness of their soul. Let me read to you uh, from chapter 17. This is on the perseverance of the saints. In paragraph 3, And though they may, through the temptation of Satan and of the world, the prevalency of corruption remaining in them and the neglect of means of their preservation fall into grievous sins and for a time continue therein whereby they incur God's displeasure and grieve His Holy Spirit, come to have their graces and comforts impaired, have their hearts hardened, their consciences wounded, hurt, and scandalize others, and bring temporal judgments on themselves. Yet they shall renew their repentance and be preserved through faith in Jesus Christ to the end. I think that statement is important. This is sort of off the notes, but they neglect the means of their preservation. Often it seems to be the case when um, we would be out on the street and run into professing believers that are struggling with various sins, that are not walking with the Lord in any meaningful way. One of the very first questions that I always ask and one of the very common answers you almost always get is, no, I'm not in a church. No, I'm not under the ministry of the Word. No, I'm not under the means of grace. No, I'm not under any biblical shepherding. God has given us means. No, I'm not in the Word. No, I don't pray as much as I should, right? God has given us means that our faith would be preserved. But so often our sin is because we've neglected those means that God gives us and we've we, 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 we've turned aside to other things. So there is a real struggle that we experience as believers. But we see, secondly then, let it be the provision that God gives us in the covenant of grace. God, in His covenant of grace, has provided the spiritual power for the true believer to renew his repentance. It may take days, it may take months, it may at times take years, but if one is truly the Lord's, the power of the Spirit overcomes the power of the flesh. And we see thirdly then the promise of renewed repentance. The promise of renewed repentance. Let me, let me read that again. Fifteen two. God hath, in the covenant of grace, mercifully provided that believers so sinning and falling be renewed through repentance unto salvation. So God gives us the spiritual power that we need. Amen. Turn away from sin. When we, when we again, afresh, come to our senses, see our sin for what it is, see the glory of God for what it is, See that there's no comparison between these two things and cast off the ways of the flesh. God graciously promises that His blood-bought church, when they fall, He has given them all that they need in the covenant of grace to renew the joy of their salvation in the light of His presence. I want to read to you. Our brother Paul looked at this text. I wanted to read John 21 
Paul read this or was was in this text a couple weeks ago in the Lord's Day. But a beautiful picture, right, of restoration. John 21, I'm sure some of us have been like Peter at times, bold, quick to speak, right? I'll, I'll, I'll die for you, Lord. I will never deny you. And then, not but a few hours later, a young girl is all it took for Peter to deny his Lord. A picture of all of us in the weakness of our, of our flesh. But John 21 and 15, when, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord. You know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord. You know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. So Peter has fallen. Peter has denied publicly the Lord Jesus. And Jesus Christ restores him to the ministry. Right? He restores him back to this apostolic ministry graciously and lovingly and commands him to do the work of the shepherd and feed his sheep and tend his lambs. And so we have been talking about repentance and we have yet to define repentance. Again, the, the order here is a bit odd compared to the rest of the confession. So paragraph 3 uh, we now will get into what it, repentance actually is. Does anybody have any, anything to add before we, before we move on? All right, 15, 3. Chapter 15, paragraph 3. This saving repentance is an evangelical grace, whereby a person being by the Holy Spirit (coughs) made sensible of the manifold evils of his sin, does by faith in Christ humble himself for it with godly sorrow, detestation of it, and self-abhorrency, praying for pardon and strength of grace with a purpose and endeavor by supplies of the Spirit to walk before God unto all well-pleasing in all things. So let's break this down a bit. The elements of repentance. The elements of repentance. We saw there firstly that repentance is an evangelical grace, a gospel grace or fruit spiritual fruit of the gospel, if you will. There's two types of repentance, at least in the minds of the Protestant Reformed. We have uh, legal repentance and evangelical repentance, or gospel repentance. Uh, Legal repentance is when, and this is taken from an early Baptist named Christopher Blackwood, legal repentance is when a person is brought to the side of his sins, without beholding any pardon in Christ. Think of Cain, 
Think of Judas. There was no no repentance toward God. There was no godly sorrow, godly grief. There was no seeking after Christ for, uh, for mercy. And it says the law in legal repentance, the law works wrath within them. They see the judgment of their sin. Um, First it lets us see sin, and then it troubles the conscience for it by threatening wrath. He says the law is full of wormwood. And so legal repentance is repentance that sees sin, sees even that it it brings judgment in cursing, but there's no turning to the Lord for pardon. There's no hope in that repentance. We might think of Paul's language when he contrasts Worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. Worldly sorrow may very well weep. You know, you see the man that was drunk and he, and he loses control of his car and he hits another vehicle and he wakes up and he realizes that he's just been arrested for vehicular homicide, right? And he's weeping over his sin, but he has no concern for God. He's weeping because his life is destroyed now, right? He's weeping over the consequences of his sin. He sees the judgment and wrath that's been put upon him because of his actions. Evangelical repentance or gospel repentance, he says, is is a transformation or change of mind and heart, which is wrought by the Holy Ghost through the power of the Word, whereby a believing sinner is humbled for all sin, and turns away from it in the purpose of his heart, with a hatred of it, that so the image of God may be restored in him. So you see, this is a whole different matter here. As we, see, as we think of this evangelical repentance, or repentance unto life, as the chapter is titled, this is when a man, by the grace of God, is made aware of his sin, made aware that it is an offense of the Lord, and turns away. Right, turns away from that sin and turns to God for mercy and grace. So when we speak of evangelical repentance, this is what Timothy was instructed by Paul when he said that God might grant them repentance. This is a work of the Holy Spirit in the gospel. And so we see some steps here. We saw firstly that man is made aware of his sin. True repentance, man must see with new eyes that he has offended a thrice holy God. True awareness of sin is to see, yes, that we have offended our fellow man, but even more so that we've offended the thrice holy God. Amen? If there's no understanding that I've sinned against the Lord, there's no true repentance. There's no true understanding of of sin because he's the one ultimately that we have offended, as David says in Psalm 51, against you and you alone have I sinned. I mean, he, he murdered a man and he committed adultery with his wife, but he understands that above all of that is an offense to the holy God. So man is made aware and repentance unto life. Man is made aware of the greatness of his sin and he humbles himself, it says, and detests his sin. Godly sorrow is that which despises the new knowledge that I have sinned against my Creator. 
There's some measure of grief over this sin. There's some measure of hatred for this sin. That I have sinned against and grieved the God in whose image I have been created. And I'm sure to some degree in different measures, but we've all experienced this, those in Christ. Right? At some point, the Lord humbled us and we saw our sin in a new light and we, we were broken by it. We were, we were moved by the fact that we had offended God. It wasn't that someone had caught us in our sin. It wasn't that, that the, the, it had finally come out, but it was ultimately that we had offended the Lord of glory. And he says then, the confession says then, the man that is repenting unto life confesses to God for pardon and strength to overcome. Repentance unto life is repentance toward God for offending His holy law. It is, it is repentance that recognizes the need of forgiveness. The need of help. We might say it's not enough to feel sorrow for hurting someone else. That's good, right? It's not enough to be Sorrowful for the consequences of our actions. That's good. But true repentance seeks pardon from the Lord. True repentance flees to God to find mercy. Fifthly, here, there is an endeavor to walk in new obedience. Baptist Catechism says it similarly, with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. So even more than the spirit-motivated seeking of the forgiveness of God, there is also a spirit-motivated desire to walk in new obedience. And we need to be careful here. There's a lot of confusion when we talk about repentance. We'll talk about this at the end. But this is not the cessation of all sin, right? There's, there's sometimes... You might talk to someone and they say, well, I'm living like this and I got all this going on and I got to got to fix all these things and I'm going to come to God. You know, what are they? What do they probably really mean? Maybe you and I said things to that effect. You know, what we really mean is I'm not ready to let these things go. Right. I'm not ready to put these down. I'm not ready to walk away. But repentance is not the cessation of all sin. I'm sure that some of you here came to God in repentance, living in a sinful lifestyle that wasn't all just fixed overnight. But repentance is a man turning away from that sin. Turning away from that which caused the offense of God and turning to God in faith. Listen to J.C. Ryle. He says, the life of a penitent man, a repentant man, is altered. The course of his daily conduct is entirely changed. A new king reigns within his heart. He puts off the old man. What God commands, he now desires to practice. And what God forbids, he now desires to avoid. He strives in all ways to keep clear of sin to fight with sin, to war with sin, to get victory over sin. Now, there's some good, uh, there's some good things to pray for there, for your own soul, for your loved ones, for those in your church. God, would you, would you give me 
the, the desire to practice the things that you command? Would you give me the desire to, to avoid the things you forbid more and more to a greater degree? And so we see this, these steps of true repentance. Fourthly, or paragraph four, we see the, the continual duty of, of repentance. As repentance is to be continued through the whole course of our lives upon the account of the body of death and the motions thereof, so it is every man's duty to repent of his particular known sins particularly. To repent of his particular known sins particularly. So what are they, what are they saying here? They're speaking of particular Repentance. Remember, we are particular Baptists. Particular repentance of particular sins. What we're saying is simply that true repentance is not general and vague and generic, right? True repentance puts the finger square on those offenses against God. True repentance puts the finger square on our own heart and brings them in humble contrition to the Lord. When we speak about repentance, we're not saying, Lord, I know I've messed up. I know I've sinned somewhere, somehow, probably today, maybe. Would you please forgive me of whatever I might have done? But true repentance searches the heart. True repentance sees a thing that's wrong and takes it to the Lord. Seeks to mortify that sin for the glory of God. So we have this duty of continual repentance. We have... Uh, this this duty, it's not morbid introspection, right? It's not this over-infatuation with, um, with our own sin. We can, we can dwell on these things in a way that is unhealthy. Um, we ought to have our eyes on the grace of God. But when we sin and when we see things in our life, we ought to bring them before the Lord. Cut them off at the root as we are able by the power of the Spirit. And we see, fifthly, the sufficiency of Grace in repentance. Paragraph 5. Such is the provision which God has made through Christ in the covenant of grace for the preservation of believers unto salvation, that although there is no sin so small, but it deserves damnation, yet there is no sin so great that it shall bring damnation to them that repent which makes the constant preaching of repentance necessary. So there is no sin that is so small it does not deserve hell. Do we, do we, do we agree with that? The cookie from the cookie jar is the breaking of the Eighth Commandment and it deserves eternal damnation. That's sometimes hard for us to maybe wrap our, our heads around um, and, and, and I, I don't think it's right to say all sins are equal. All sins deserve the just wrath of God, certainly. Um, I think it's naive to think that God views the man on the freeway that, you know, car jumps out and an F-bomb flies out versus the child predator. God does not view these things on the same level, right? But all sin necessitates Eternal damnation. So one sin, we've broken the whole law, and we've sinned often. And yet, there is no sin so great 
or there is not a pile of sin so high that for a man that repents, he is beyond the pale of God's grace. And this is why we must continually, the confession says, preach repentance to the believer or to the unbeliever, but also to the believer. Have you, friend, committed terrible sins? Are you today a vile sinner? Our sins are many. They are heinous and wicked and evil and destructive. And yet His grace is greater and sufficient to cover them all. So in His covenant of grace, Christ has given man all that he needs to be preserved and kept unto glory as his repentance is daily renewed. And so I want to close with a question. And we have a little bit of time. If we have to repent, maybe I'm I'm taking a, a leap there, but are we talking about faith plus something else? Right? If we're talking about repentance, are we saved by works? Now, you're good Christians, and you would clearly say, no, we're not saved by works. But is repentance a work that we have to do? Is not repentance something that we do or something that we cease doing? Right? Is, is salvation actually faith plus the need to stop sinning? I want to look at some passages just to get a feel for how the Bible <coughs> speaks of these things. I, I don't have a, a bulletin. Did I give you these references? Uh, yeah, 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 yes, yes. So, Dustin, can you get Ephesians 2.8? Somebody else, John 3.16. You got that? I mean, if you just want to, if you just want to do it off the off the top, you can do that too. If you got it. Somebody else want to get Romans one sixteen? You want to do that? Romans one sixteen. Okay. How about Romans four three? Got that, Paul? And somebody ten seventeen? Okay. I'm going to get 322. I think it was 28. Yeah. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. So Paul says in Ephesians 2 that we're saved by faith, right? How about John 3.16? So there all that required is believing. Right? Whoever believes, all the believing ones will be saved. How about Romans 1.16? Everyone that believes. Right? Everyone that believes. How about, let me read 3.22. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Four three. So that's what he did. He believed, and then ten seventeen. 
Okay, so we're saved, clearly the Bible says, by faith. But we're called to repent as well. How about somebody want to read Mark or Mark 3, 2? Yes, thank you. <laughs> Dustin, you want it? we're going to go across again. Dustin, Mark 3, 2. Sarah, Mark 6, 12. Somebody over here, Luke 3, 13. Okay, Luke 3, 13. Um, Acts 2, 38. You want to get that, Acts 2, 38? Okay, and I'll get Acts 17, 30. Dustin, when you get there, you can, you can go for it. And who is that speaking? So he's preaching repentance. Now, we could quibble here that it's John the Baptist, but he's preaching repentance. The kingdom has come, and so you need to repent, right? Turn away from your sin. How about Mark 6, 12? Okay. So they went, that's the context of their preaching is repentance, right? How about Luke 3.13? Okay. Okay, so he's telling them there, turn away from your false ways, right? From your, your lies, your, your stealing. Um, 2.38, Acts 2.38. Amen. So that's the Pentecost, and they come and say, what do we do? They're cut to the heart, and he says, repent, right? He does. It's interesting. Often in that context, they don't say believe. They say repent, right? And then Acts 17 30, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. But we're also called to repent and believe. Somebody, Dustin again, Mark 1.15, Sarah, Acts 26.20, and that'll, that'll do it there. Okay, repent and believe. So now Jesus there in the beginning of his ministry in Mark's gospel puts these two things together, repent and believe in the gospel. And then Acts 26, 20. Sure. Okay, and I wanted to see there this idea, because I think that's helpful uh, simply to understand what we're talking about here. That they are to repent, but they're not just, you know, I think it's, is it Grudem has an illustration of a rock. You know, and repentance is, is turning away and putting something down, but you don't just stand here now neutral, right? It's not like, hey, my hands are empty, I'm, I'm good now. No, but now we turn... The other way, and we turn to Christ in faith, right? So there's this dual act of, of turning away from what is here, but we turn around with a change of mind, 
I see my sin. I see that it's evil. I see God. I've offended Him. I'm turning away from that. I'm endeavoring by the power of His Spirit to turn away from these things, but I'm turning to Him as the solution, as the answer. John Murray says it better. Uh, This is Jeremy Walker sort of summarizing Professor Murray's um, ideas. He says that repentance is the twin sister of faith. We cannot think of one without the other. And so repentance would be conjoined with faith in the order of salvation. They're the same act. They happen together. Conversion is simply another name for repentance and faith. Conjoined and would therefore be enclosed in repentance and faith. Faith and repentance can be distinguished. Right? We've done that. We've, for two different weeks, we've talked about them separately, but they cannot be divided, and no one should attempt to do so. True faith is always bathed in, suffused with true repentance. He goes on to say, Christ saves through faith, and we should not give that place to repentance, right? We want, we want to confess we are saved by faith alone. Nevertheless, a faith that knows nothing of sorrow for sin with a yearning for holiness and increasingly complete obedience to the will of God in Christ is not saving faith. It is therefore both proper and helpful to have faith and repentance standing together in the confession. So are we saved by faith? Are we saved by repentance we speak of these things, they're really two sides of the same coin, right? Uh, we are saved, yes, by trusting in Jesus. Whoever believes upon Christ will be saved. And we, we, that's a hill we die on. We are, we are saved by receiving and resting on Christ alone for the pardon of our sins. But that true biblical faith, that spirit-wrought faith, has now been given eyes to see sin as God sees it. That true biblical faith has been given a new heart that now hates sin and desires something new. And so the very act, as we just said, the very act of turning unto Christ in faith coincides with the act of turning away from the thing that caused the offense of God. And so we are not saved by works We don't call people to stop all sin. That's not the idea of repentance. But it is an act of turning away from the old man and turning to God in faith and laying hold of his promises. I'm going to stop there.